ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Monday the 22nd of January. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, community divide, tensions rise over a review into New South Wales hate speech laws with claims Muslims are being unfairly targeted. And disgraced detective, we look back at the life of convicted killer and corrupt cop Roger Rogerson, who's died at the age of 83. He had these piercing blue eyes and he was uh, quite the raconteur. And he, but then again, go along and, and murder someone who was basically an innocent person who just dared to be in potential threat to him. So a very complicated character, you know, that evil, just total chameleon. First today, the federal government has struck deals with two of the nation's biggest gas exporters in an effort to secure domestic supply for the East Coast. It's hoped that the agreement will reduce the chance of blackouts and ease cost of living pressures for consumers and also for industry. Gas giants Woodside and Esso have committed to pump more than 260 petajoules of gas into the domestic market by 2033. The federal government says that's the equivalent of around two and a half years of gas power generation demand. And while there's broad agreement it will help to keep the lights on, there is scepticism on whether it will do anything to reduce power bills. David Taylor reports. The concern is that Australian businesses and households on the East Coast will suffer blackouts in the months and years ahead. Bruce Mountain is the director of the Victoria Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University. Gas producers will uh, will seek to sell into those markets that give them the highest prices and that have the most certain um, prospects. And generally speaking, that's meant uh, offshore gas demand. And ESSO, which is a major supplier onshore, has effectively been finding a market for its gas, not just in Victoria, but exporting it north. The federal government put in a price cap to protect Australian businesses and households from surging local gas prices. But it came with the risk gas producers would play hardball and limit local supply as a result. And so they carved out um, exemptions Um, letting gas uh, firms sell gas locally at a price higher than the cap if they're guaranteed to sell it. And this deal is in the same vein as that, um, but attempts to put numbers on it. What he means by that is that this deal firms up supply, but it comes at a cost. Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen and Resources Minister Madeleine King said the deal would bring the total volume of gas secured through the gas market code to 564 petajoules, which equates to roughly half a decade of power needs. But as the Deputy Director of Energy and Climate Change at the Grattan Institute, Alison Reeve, explains, there's no guarantee it'll lead to lower prices. Now, that shores up the supply. It doesn't always fix the price. Um, because there is a, a process for um, looking at what the world prices are doing and then figuring out, well, if that extra gas is going to be diverted to the domestic market, what do people get paid get paid for it? So that can mean that when world prices are going through a sustained period of being quite high, um, that even though we do get more gas in the domestic market, the price of that will still be perhaps higher than what we're used to. So if we're thinking about you know, if impacts on on cost of living, um, 
having extra gas available doesn't always necessarily mean that you get lower gas prices for consumers or lower electricity prices because our electricity prices are affected by gas prices as well. Western Australia has avoided gas shortages because gas producers are required to keep 15% of supply onshore for local use. But it's also led to a great reliance on the fossil fuel. Alison Reeves is concerned new deals like this one only entrench gas as a preferred source of power. You don't want to be encouraging people to use gas. You actually want to be discouraging people from using gas. It has meant that WA has ended up a lot more dependent on gas than on the East Coast, which means it's a lot harder for them to get off it in the long term. Bruce Mountain says that the root of the problem is Australia's delayed transition to use renewable energy to generate power. It's left policymakers, he says, with little choice but to focus on fossil fuels to shore up energy generation. If we close lots of coal shortly, there will not be enough energy to replace it unless we build the wind and solar quickly. Madeleine King, though, describes the deal as insurance for the energy grid as it transitions to renewables. That's David Taylor there. New South Wales Premier Chris Minns has been accused of targeting the Islamic community after announcing a review into the state's hate speech laws. The president of the National Australian National Imams Council has written to the Premier to express his concerns over the move and says he's considering withdrawing from the Faith Affairs Council. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. With community tensions rising over conflict in the Middle East, the New South Wales government announced a review into hate speech laws. Over the weekend, the Australian National Imams Council president wrote to the Premier with concerns the review would target members of his community. Bilal Rauf is the council's legal advisor. The concern is that in the reactive way that it is being done, in the rushed way it is being done, it is targeted at certain individuals' incidents in a manner which which is you know not not appropriate when one is considering broader legislative reform. The review, headed by former Supreme Court Chief Justice Tom Bathurst, will look at the policy objectives and effectiveness of Section 93Z of the Crimes Act, which deals with incitements of violence based on religion and race. But the Faith Affairs Council wasn't consulted. It provides independent advice to the New South Wales Government on issues relating to religious diversity. The review comes after the government passed laws enabling New South Wales police to launch prosecutions without approval from the Director of Public Prosecutions. Here's Bilal Rauf again. The majority of the Faith Affairs Council at the time said, well, look, this is the first we've heard of it and can we have a bit more time to understand it and can there be a broader review in the new year rather than this rushed step, which seems to be... Uh, certainly from our perspective, ineffective. And that turned out to be the case. And that's why now there seems to be a rushed um, call to conduct a review. He says the Australian National Imams Council wants more time and consultation. There is a need for a review. Clearly the, the provision isn't working, but we need some time to see now how it will be understood and applied by the police so that there can be some practical understanding of the provision in the new landscape 
And secondly, why isn't it being done by the Law Reform Commission? New South Wales Premier Chris Minns says there's demand for more urgent action. I think that there was some community concern that the reviews that the government has been undertaking, particularly when it comes to law issues, take an inordinate amount of time. And if there are changes to the legislation that we can bring in in a shorter period of time, then that would be welcomed. I did make a decision, however, to ask Mr Tom Bathurst to conduct the review. People would know that he is also the chair of the Law, Law Reform Commission in New South Wales. So I think we got the balance right. And he rejected claims he's shown little support to the Islamic diaspora. They're entitled to their criticism and as the Premier I've got to take it on the chin. But I, I, I don't think it's right and um, I reject the criticism. I don't think it's um, borne out by the facts. I've said many times that I'm concerned about the death of innocent civilians, even though it's a war on the other side of the world, and regardless of which side of the conflict that they're on. Anglican Bishop of South Sydney, Michael Stead, is also a member of the Faith Affairs Council. He understands the Imams Council's concerns. Yes, I, I can understand where they're coming from. Things have moved very quickly. Uh, we, we didn't know about this review until pretty much it was announced by, by the Premier. Um, and so in, in an ideal world, it would, be, it would have been good to have been consulted in the process. I recognise it's a, a difficult time of year. We're in January, many people are on holiday, so there are limitations. The New South Wales government is expecting a report within three months. That's Elizabeth Cramsey reporting there. And in a statement, the Executive Council of Australian Jury says the law has proven unable to deal with hate preachers. It says hate speech against one group is ultimately a threat to society, which undermines cohesion and harmony. Right across Australia, you're tuned in to The World Today. The Palestinian death toll from the Israel-Gaza war has passed 25,000. The United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has described the deaths of civilians in Gaza as heartbreaking. Meanwhile, as the fighting continues, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has again rejected creating a Palestinian state. Rachel Hayter reports. As the fighting continues in Gaza, the Hamas-run health ministry says more than 25,000 people have been killed since the Israeli offensive began. Israel's air and ground operation, which started in response to the October 7 Hamas terrorist attacks, which killed more than 1,200 people, is now focused on southern Gaza. The United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, has denounced the deaths of Palestinian civilians. In Gaza, Israel's military operations have spread massive destruction and killed civilians on a scale unprecedented during my time as Secretary-General, including more than 150 members of our own staff following the horrific terror attacks by Hamas on 7 October. This is heartbreaking and utterly unacceptable. Meanwhile, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is vowing to continue the war until Israeli hostages are released and Hamas is defeated. In exchange for the release of our hostages, Hamas demands the end of the war, the withdrawal of our forces from Gaza, 
the release of all the murderers and rapists of Hamas and leaving Hamas intact. If we agree to this, our warriors fell in vain. If we agree to this, we will not be able to guarantee the security of our citizens. And in a video statement released yesterday, he's again rejected calls from the United States and others for post-war plans to include a path to a Palestinian state. As Prime Minister of Israel, I firmly stood by this position in the face of great international and internal pressures. My insistence is what prevented for years the establishment of a Palestinian state, which would have posed an existential danger to Israel. As long as I am Prime Minister, I will continue to firmly stand by it. But UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres is warning resisting a two-state solution will lead to more violence in the Middle East. The denial of the right to statehood for the Palestinian people would indefinitely prolong a conflict that has become a major threat to global peace and security, exacerbate polarisation and embolden extremists everywhere. The UK's Defence Minister, Grant Shapps, has described the Israeli Prime Minister's opposition to a Palestinian state as very disappointing, but not a surprise. But the point is, which other route is there to seriously resolve this? Palestinians deserve a sovereign state. Israel deserves to have the full ability to defend itself, its own security, in other words. The Israeli military says it's killed around 9,000 militants. That's Rachel Hayter reporting there. Well, it's down to a two-horse race in the bid to win the US Republican Party's nomination for president. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the running. In a social media video, he said he doesn't have a clear path to victory and he's throwing his support behind former President Donald Trump. Mr Trump and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley will now face off at tomorrow's primary election in New Hampshire. Rachel Mealy reports. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was once labelled the future of the Republican Party. Now he says that mantle is Donald Trump's. I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. Ron DeSantis had a poor showing last week at the first of the Republican Party primaries in Iowa. His withdrawal from the race means the Republican Party now faces a choice between former President Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis believes there's no contest. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. That is clear. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. The days of putting Americans last, of kowtowing to large corporations, of caving to woke ideology are over. The next primary on the calendar will be held tomorrow in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley heard the news on the hustings. We just heard that Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the race. It's now one fella and one lady left. The timing of DeSantis's announcement came as a shock. Many had expected him to stay in the race until he took on Nikki Haley in her home state of South Carolina. These fellas say this because they want people to believe it. But what's amazing to me is they think they can lie to the American people and the American people are going to believe it. Prove it. 
prove one thing that they've said. Prove the fact that Donald Trump says I want to cut Social Security or raise the age. I've never said that. Prove the fact that Donald Trump says I want to raise gas taxes. I've never said that or done that. Prove that Ron DeSantis says that I'm a corporate whatever he says I am. I've never done that. Scott Jennings is a former special assistant to President George W. Bush and also a Republican commentator on CNN. He sees only one outcome of the primary process. I suspect Trump's going to win New Hampshire and coast on to the nomination now. At a rally over the weekend, Donald Trump appeared to confuse Nikki Haley for former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi when he spoke about the insurrection at the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, so whatever they want, they turned it down. Haley took the opportunity to question Donald Trump's capacity to take on the presidency once again. I wasn't in D.C. on January 6th. I had nothing to do with the Capitol. It's things like that. He said multiple times that he ran against President Obama. He didn't run against President Obama. These things happen because guess what? When you're 80, that's what happens. You're just not as sharp as you used to be. But commentator Scott Jennings says that message isn't cutting through for Republican voters. So the end of the line has come for DeSantis. It is nearing for Haley. And I think we are, unless something happens to Joe Biden, looking at a rematch of uh, 2020 uh, here in 2024. That's a Republican and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings ending that report from Rachel Mealy. Corrupt police officer and convicted killer Roger Rogerson has died at the age of 83. The former detective was serving a life sentence for murder. Rogerson was once one of the most decorated officers in the New South Wales police force, but he shattered his own career by taking part in repeated shootings, fraud and corruption. Mark Mori is crime editor of the Daily Telegraph newspaper in Sydney. He had these piercing blue eyes and he was uh, quite the raconteur and, he, and uh, you'd go into a pub and it was like going into a pub with a rock star. There were people wanting to come up and talk to him constantly. He had rehabilitated his image, all for the greater good, you know, noble cause corruptions, basically what was attached to his name when, in fact, he was killing people. The reality was very, very sinister. It was totally, you're, you're right, and I... I spoke to the brother of one of his victims who very few people know about, and that was a young model who fell into bad company called Lynn Woodward, and she was a friend of Sally Ann Huckstep, who was famously found murdered in Centennial Park. Now, Lynn, in 1981, was about to talk about Rogerson's corruption at, at the inquest into that shooting of Warren Lanfranchi. She walked out of the courtroom, the back of the courtroom was never seen again. Very, very good sources in the New South Wales police said that Nettie and Roger grabbed her and then shot her and killed her and disposed of her body, which has never been found. Now, when you hear those stories, this is not a man that just shot dead other criminals. He would shoot anyone that got into his way. What does it tell us about the level of corruption when Roger Rogerson was a police officer in New South Wales? I think that the fact that he could thrive in those 70s and 80s, it tells you how bad it was. The fact that he was considered a rising star, a potential police commissioner. You had the, the deputy police commissioner around that time was known as the bag man. You, you had a corrective services minister, Rex Jackson, who got jailed because he was getting 
giving people get-out-of-free cards as long as they paid him money. That's, you know, we had ministers who were doing that sort of behaviour and Roger was in the thick of that. You know, it was because of him when he was a Darlinghurst detective, the term the Golden Mile came about. Anyone that wanted to operate a club, sell alcohol, deal drugs, had to pay New South Wales police and Roger was the one that was orchestrating all that. He was a scary person back then, you know. What made him a good cop before he turned bad? I remember talking to him once about, uh, well, he brought it up, and it was the murder of a a 16-year-old girl. She was abducted. He was considered a a brilliant detective at times. But I think there was a certain, he he hated drug people. He didn't care. He just thought they were the scum of the earth and that they were ripe to be shot, to be robbed. But in another sense, he would stand up for anyone that committed crimes against you know, helpless people, you know, quite a contradiction. But then again, go along and and murder someone who was basically an innocent person who just dared to be in potential threat to him. So a very complicated character, you know, that evil that that was just laying underneath but was covered so so cleverly uh, with his charisma. You know, he was a terrific piano player, could sing and would hold court in, in bars, you know, just total chameleon. Because the corruption was so endemic and because accountability took so long to come about, did Rogerson have opportunities along the way where if he'd pulled his head in, he almost would have got away with everything? He could have, you know, and there were, there were police officers around him who obviously were from that era who didn't get caught, weren't kicked out of the force, or a number of others that were. So Rogerson just thought he was invincible. There was a touch of arrogance and and he just didn't believe he had to slow down. How do you think he will be remembered? Probably is one of the most evil, corrupt police that this country has ever seen. That's Mark Murray there, crime editor at the Daily Telegraph newspaper in Sydney, talking about the life of Roger Rogerson. Finally today, we are less than a week away from the next Australian Open tennis champions being crowned. And once again, the trophies will be heading offshore. There are no more local players left in the singles draw. Alex Dimonor was the last hope and he was defeated in a five-set epic last night. As Australians watch from the sidelines, where is our next champion coming from? Angus Randall reports. It took five sets, over four hours, but eventually Russian star Andrei Rublev was too good for local hopeful Alex Dimonor. The 24-year-old was the last Australian left in the singles draw. He says it was an opportunity missed. You know, maybe a couple years ago or even last year I would be sitting here and saying, oh, I probably shouldn't have won, but... It's completely changed because now I'm sitting here and I'm absolutely devastated because I saw it as a, as a great opportunity and a match that I strongly believe I, I could have won. Alex Dimonor is ranked 10th in the world. There's no shame in going down to the world number five, but there's always heightened expectations at a home tournament. John Millman retired from tennis only a few days ago when he was knocked out of the Open. From the locker room, he could see Dimonor was ready for the big time. He'll be disappointed. He hadn't lost yet in 2024. He was playing some fantastic tennis. Around the locker room, there was this steely, calm confidence that I hadn't seen before from him. I'm excited for the future, and I'm excited for the future of Australian tennis, especially with him at the helm, because I think he's going to give Australians a lot 
of reasons to cheer. There are nine Australians in the men's top 100. Only France and the United States have a higher representation. Peter Johnston is a tournament director and former tennis pro. After spending the past two weeks in Melbourne, he says the future is bright. We've got a lot of depth in the men's, and it's a competitive world. Like, there's so many countries. If you think of France has got around 28 players in the main draw of men's and women's, you've got the upsurge of new players coming out of China. There's three great new Chinese men and a bunch of Chinese women who are doing well. It's just in a global game, I think we punch pretty well above our weight. It's a different story in the women's game. Ash Barty's retirement two years ago has left no Australians in the top 100. We're probably, as you'd say, in a rebuilding stage, certainly with the loss of Ash Barty. And we've had a couple of injuries uh, on our very two top girls in Isla Tomlanovic and Daria Saville. Look, there's certainly a lot of up and coming ones. And it's just a matter of you know, nurturing them, helping them to do well and guide them over the next few years. How organised is our junior system to make sure those players do take it to that next level? Tennis is so accessible in Australia. And it's funny, when you walk around, even in Melbourne now, and you see the private courts or just the public courts everywhere, people are hitting balls, hitting balls against the wall. So it's easy to play. Then I think the, the challenge is you just have to nurture and guide and help. You don't have to run the program centrally. You have to ignite the industry and make sure that club structure and the coach structure and the competition structure is all in place. And I think that is there. It's not all over for the locals. There are still Australians in the men's, women's and mixed doubles. Angus Randall reporting. That's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe.